Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, they'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline. I write the How to Decorate blog. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Karen. I head up Ballard's branding team. We're We're your hosts. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of the show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at BallardDesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. And now on with the show. All right. So we're going to do some trials and triumphs. It's been a minute. I think, Karen, you should go first. Or maybe you should go last since this is some big news. Okay. And they can like, okay, because I'll, I'll go really fast because mine are lame. And then you can All go right. and, and like we right. can talk about All it. Right. Um, okay. So I got my peonies planted and in the ground, planting and digging holes is so freaking hard. <laughs> Because you were you weren't using an existing bed, correct? Right. I was digging into like clay and uh-huh. rock. I planted them one morning, like last weekend, and I pretty much died in the afternoon and had to take a nap because mm-hmm. my body hurt. But I did it, <laughs> and I dug my trench like big enough so that when I get my dahlias today, I can plant them tomorrow. That like the holes already fresh. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that'll be easier. Are you planting them in the same trench together? Because I just planted yes. dahlias and peonies too, based on what you uh oh did you get them i got them in the same place good yeah i i think i got a lot of sort of pinks and corals Mm -hmm. so that they all look good together i got that and i got dahlia's peonies i got some ranunculas and some anemones so i've shoved all that in i first of all i had to google like which end goes up (laughs) oh yeah i'm such a gardener Um, no, I had the same thing because, you know, I've seen like tulip bulbs or daffodil bulbs where it looks like a little teardrop. Yes, it's very These intuitive. don't look like this. Mm-mm. They look like little pieces of stick. Tentacles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, for some reason, so yours all came at the same time? Yes. Okay. I got mm-hmm. my peonies a couple of weeks ago. And of course, I didn't read the directions and it said you should refrigerate them before they go in the ground. And I didn't. So oh, I didn't uh-oh. do that either. I didn't read any directions. Okay. See? So, oops. <laughs> it's like measuring. I don't do that. <laughs> um, well, so here's the thing. I did plan them. I am planning to plant them together because peonies and dahlias don't bloom at the same time. Oh. So the peonies will look good in a spring, early, early summer. Mm-hmm. Dahlias will get big midsummer, early fall. So okay. I was sort of thinking I'd plant them together, like interspersed, so that as one is kind of like, Dying out. Dying the other one, but kind of smart. We'll see if it works. I don't know. Yeah, I did mine in rows sort of alternating. So who knows? I don't know what I'm doing. pretty. But I'm I'm kind of excited to try something different. Yeah. And and I'm excited to have something to cut, hopefully. Yes, because Um, you're the best flower arranger ever. I mean, but see, here's the thing about peonies and dahlias. It's just, you. they always look good. Yeah, you can't hurt them. You just put them in a vase and they look perfect. You know, no arranging required. That's good so. for me because I am not a flower <laughs> arranger, but I love flowers. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best. I mean, I'm putting cayenne like pepper out fresh... on mine too. Okay. I didn't do that, but I just, I just honestly lost steam. Um, here's my, <laughs> my trial and I need our listeners help. So hopefully they can send an advice if they have any. We found some more copperheads, copperhead babies. No. So I am feeling very nervous about it. And I was sort of like doing some like Googling and basically the advice is to cut down any like long grass. But the problem is that all these copperheads are in Ivy and it's like a big area. And like I would at some point love to clear out all that Ivy, but it's not a possibility right at this moment. Uh And so I'm wondering if there's some sort of like pellet or powder or Something. something that I can kind of sprinkle, if nothing else, like along like our trails and like where we would kind of be walking walking mm. um yeah so if anyone listening has any idea about getting rid of poisonous snakes um please send them my way or if you have and then someone my neighbor also mentioned mothballs oh so so they just don't um, like that smell i guess yeah so if anyone That's has any Caroline. if anybody has any suggestions lot. i know yeah and yeah like we've found them in both the grass, like we're like in the ivy where we wouldn't necessarily be walking, but also on the street where they were obviously like going somewhere and like got run over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would love to be able to play outside in our yard this because, yeah. you know, Blair's 
two and a half, three, like we're in kind of prime like playtime. So anywho, I need help with that. Okay. Okay. So let's get to your news. Okay. Other than planning bulbs, I do have some big news. So um, something happened at work, you guys at Ballard Designs. I got promoted. Yeah. Believe it or not. I know a lot of you are shocked. So um, yeah. <laughs> so you've, we've had Ryan on the podcast before. He was our president and he's been promoted within our corporation. And mm-hmm. now I was promoted to president of Ballard. So it's really exciting. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And also, okay, I will say that you've sort of played down your existing, like you say in the intro that you're in charge of branding and marketing, but you are our senior vice president. So like it's... And I have been at Ballard 20 years. <laughs> I've been there a long time. Um, and you know, I, you know how much I love Ballard and the brand and it's just, you know, in my blood and I, y'all are my family. And so it, it's pretty exciting for me. So, uh, but the sort of the the trial part of it is that I will have to exit the podcast because I got a lot on my plate, y'all. Yeah. So, um, Car- Caroline did a cool little like casting call internally. So we're we're looking for some new talent internally to to take my mic. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very sad, and you know I I don't know. I feel like it's just going to be. I'm very excited for you. Obviously, it's huge, and you deserve it. And I feel like you've always been like our leader you know, obviously Ryan has two, like, it's not like he, I'm more than cheerleader one. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the bouncy one. He's like, let's go. You know, presidents are busy. And I feel like he, I've like spent a lot more time with you directly. And so I was just, you know. And the other cool thing, Caroline, it did happen on International Women's Day, which was kind of cool. And I'm the first female president of Ballard. Helen Ballard started the company, but she was the CEO and founder, and we had a male president, and I'm the first female. So that's cool, too. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of listeners might be relieved. (laughs) (laughs) No. I feel like our dynamic is like we really rely on each other. So Yeah, it's a nice nice little group. But we'll we'll find someone, and so y'all, please be patient with us. And maybe you can come back like yearly or something, sure. as like you know, for well, or quarterly. Uh huh. Because I'm getting ready to start a little design project. I'll talk about it on our next trials and triumphs. Oh, and I thought you meant like at work. No, at home. At home. And so yeah. that's something that, that I kind of want to keep y'all posted on because I'm excited about it. Yeah. I'm with an interior designer for the first time, and I want to let y'all know how it goes because I haven't done it and it seems intimidating to me. Yeah. But I'm gonna try it. Awesome. Okay. Yay. Okay. I like the idea of you coming on like every so often because that way you can still sort of be a part of it and then special guest. Yeah. Cool. All right. Okay. So let's get to our guest. It's actually another art advisor. We talked to Isla Kant last week. We have another art advisor, Catherine Earnhardt, and sort of different conversations. Yeah. We try, We really made an effort not to overlap, but I feel like it's a good one. So hopefully y'all enjoy it. Excellent. All right. Let's get to the show. Okay, so we are so excited to have our guest today, Catherine Earnhardt. She is an art expert. She's worked in the art market for 15 years, and she founded a business called Mason Lane Art in 2014 with the goal of making art accessible to everyone. In addition to helping your clients understand and acquire art, you also consult on wallpaper, paint, styling, and well, and the styling of those art pieces in the space. And Mason Lane also has offices, well, in New York, where you're based, and as well as Toronto and the Midwest. Thank you so much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. I love art. I'm very passionate about art, but I have many, many questions for you. And we get lots of questions from our listeners because, you know, it's an, as I'm sure you know, with sort of the purpose behind finding, founding your, um, your business, it, it doesn't feel super accessible all the time. There's a lot of mystery and a lot of hiccups I think people experience when they're buying and hanging and displaying their artwork. So um, maybe just give us a little bit, just a short background of how you got into the art world and um, how you started your business. Sure. So I have been, as you mentioned, in the art world for about 15 years. And 
it's always been a passion starting from high school when I was in studio art classes to moving into college at Williams College in Western Massachusetts and attending art history classes. And then I sort of by default took an economics class and surprisingly really liked it. Uh, it's kind of the opposite of art history and being creative. It's very analytical and logical. And they really, I actually was much better at that than art history <laughs> academically, but uh, I preferred art history. So I chose to major in both, kind of even out my interests in GPA basically, and started looking into how I could merge those interests in the art business field. And at the time, I mean, I graduated in 2004 and at the time, even professors were saying it was such a strange combination, but I found it to be extremely useful because a lot of art specialists don't have the logic analytical skills, I think, or business skills that have really helped me find my niche. And so after college, I went to graduate school. I found something called an art business program, which was right aligned with my interests. And it was through Sotheby's Institute of Art in London. I got my master's and then returned to the U.S. and started working in the field of art business. I worked at MoMA in New York City uh, in the management office. I then worked at Christie's as a business manager. I worked at an art appraisal and advisory firm called Gurjohn's and just learned so much about the value of art and uh, the business side of operating a small boutique and then ultimately decided to start my own business when I felt that there was a niche for or an untapped niche for art advisors to help young collectors who had purchased their first home, had some disposable income, didn't want to even think about buying blue chip art probably ever, but they wanted to buy something meaningful for their homes and their college posters didn't cut it anymore. And I started researching that world, primarily because I was in that world. We had bought our first home and I'd been in the art world for 10 years and didn't know where to start buying art that I could actually afford. And so the research that I started doing really opened up a whole world of emerging artists and resources that I felt young potential collectors didn't know about. And I started my business as just myself and started getting more and more clients, mainly through mother's networking. Mother's networking boards and all that are extremely helpful. I think it's been called one of the most strong marketing groups you can tap into because mothers just trust other mothers. And I had another, I had a baby at the time. And that's kind of how the word got out and that fed my business for about the first year and a half. And I ultimately started hiring or brought on an intern and a marketing person to help me grow the business. And today, as you said, Caroline, it's we're in three cities. We do projects all over the United States and Canada. Uh, and we do everything from single piece projects to full home new builds. That's well, I can't even fathom the organization it takes to buy art for an entire house i mean how okay there's so many other things that i would like to talk about but but like do you um what do you think of when you're like buying a mix for people because if they're furnishing a big house then they're not going to want all one style so you have to just have this expansive knowledge of artists and styles and like, what are you mixing together? Or are you not mixing so, stuff together? No, that's, that's such question. a good question. So I I think I'm not one of those people that's good at a million things. I think I'm really good at like a few, like a narrow range of things. And one thing I'm really good at is just imagining how a space should look. Like, it's a fun talent for my business. It's also an annoying thing because I'm always looking at spaces, like, wanting to improve them. Um, it's an expensive personal habit, I should say. But <laughs> for clients, it's really helpful because I can go into a space and immediately pick up on, one, what their taste is and kind of what their pain points are with their space and what they want it to be um, with just visuals or a casual conversation. And two, I'm able to nurture that taste and figure out how do we make this, if they say they want a big abstract in the space, how do I get something better than that? 
like better than they're imagining. What is that artist? How do I uh, find that piece, pitch it to them, sell it to them, and then curate it with 50 other things happening in the home? And it's all, I guess it's all just this ability to imagine how I think that room should feel, how the cues that I'm taking from the client about what the vibe and energy of each room is, whether it's supposed to feel serene and relaxed or vibrant and energetic or moody, like a library that you use at night with ambient lighting. I mean, all of that kind of comes into play. And we're always figuring out where to save and where to splurge. Whether our clients have $100,000 or $20,000 or whatever their budget is, I want them to buy wisely and there are places to splurge and places to save. And that strategy comes into play a lot when we're doing full house projects because I'd much rather my clients spend the bulk of their or a relatively larger portion of their budget on walls that will give them will have a bigger impact on the space than the powder room. But I also really like those sort of small unexpected vignettes. So I, I save some room for that. <laughs> okay. Cause that, you, you talked, you touched on um, sort of the cost and value of art. And I do want to talk about that because, you know, for someone getting into collecting art, like, what is, where does the cost come from? Is the material, you know, like oil and acrylic versus watercolor? Is it the skill of the artist? Is it the size? Like what, where should you, if you're just starting out, kind of create your benchmark and feel like you're, you're understanding where the price is coming from? Right. That's a really great question. Uh, I had a conversation this morning with a potential client who asked two questions that I think are relevant here. And one was, how much does art cost? And two, how big should the artwork be over my couch? And I love to think about my husband's favorite. I don't know if it's an analogy. I Maybe it's an analogy, but he says, well, how big is a rope? Like it just, it, it depends. <laughs> it all depends on what you want. And so there are a few drivers for the cost of art, many of which you listed. So one is the size Another are the materials used. I mean, if you think about a huge Jeff Koons, I don't know how, if that name means anything to you guys or the audience, but he creates these enormous 30-foot metal polished sculptures that sit in very public places around the world and cost millions of dollars. So that is an incredible cost to manufacture that. So materials, obviously, when you're thinking about painting, the materials are much less, but something to factor in. Also, the artist and where that artist is in her, his or her career has a huge bearing on the cost. If you think about the cost of buying a more traditional financial asset, like a stock, you're thinking about who else is buying the stock? Is it Warren Buffett and known investors, or is it no one that I've ever heard of? Is the company run by someone who has a reputation for building successful companies. Same thing in the art world. Is this artist represented by a gallery that has a reputation for leveraging artist careers? Is the company getting reputable, getting strong press around the world, or is it getting nothing? Is the artist getting press by reputable industry tastemakers, or are they getting nothing? Is the company um, doing something innovative? Is the artist doing something innovative that you haven't seen a hundred times at West Elm? So those factors all are price drivers and help determine what that piece is going to cost. Because yeah, I, I was just thinking, you know, like even just, we've all seen sort of lots of, um, uh, or at least I know a lot of designers use those like big prints with all of this oil paint, very abstract, beautiful. Um, they can seem, even if they're, you know, say 48 inches by 48 inches, they can seem very expensive. But if you think about just the actual paint needed to cover that canvas, that alone could be what, like probably six to a thousand dollars just in paint. So then that to me, I feel like, oh, okay. I get that now. Like, that's why this painting is two, five, whatever, thousand dollars, because like just the materials, that's not even including their skill, their time, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Anyways, I just think that 
the material alone and and your Jeff Koons um, example is great. Like steel obviously is going to be very expensive. Yeah. Some of the production costs are just astronomical. So Catherine, how do we find these? um, So you're a little bit of what you've talked about is like up and coming artists and are they being well represented by reputable galleries? As someone in Atlanta, how would I know which galleries are the ones I should be frequenting? Should I just sort of Google it? Should I get out there and start walking around? Should I talk to people that have beautiful homes with great art in it? Or all I think it's a combination of all of the above. I mean, one of the top questions that we get is where do you find artists? And it's that's all my business is is sourcing new artists. So it just comes, it flows at this point Um, because whether we're going down an Instagram rabbit hole or talking to artists that we already know or galleries that we already know, we're just constantly updating our database and we update it with artists that we like, that we believe in, that we think could be well-suited for various projects that we're working on. We definitely don't update it with all the art that we come across. It's kind of loosely defined as art that Catherine likes, but I have colleagues that I work with as well and their taste (laughs) matters tremendously and they're also sort of filtering this information before we put it in. I think for anyone to start identifying compelling artists and reputable galleries, it takes some, it takes walking into, it takes comparisons, right? You can't just look at one gallery and assess whether this is a good gallery or not. It takes going to three or four and five and starting to compare. It's the same thing with restaurants. And so many people say art is so subjective. How do you know whether it's good quality or bad quality. Food is subjective too, but there are still restaurants that are widely regarded to be the best restaurants in the world and general meals or like menu items that are considered fancier, higher quality than others. So it's similar in that respect. And if you go to more than one restaurant, you're going to start to compare that. So if you go to more than one gallery, is that a helpful analogy or did (laughs) <laughs> that's a great Same analogy, with clothes like people, clothes are subjective but still there's a quality there's there are different materials that are used quality and like a general understanding of what is fashion high fashion and what's not so when you go to galleries start looking at start noticing how are they presenting the artwork is it all sort of piled on the floor or is it actually hung up in a way that looks nice that's easy for you to understand. Do they have a pricing sheet? Do they have an overview of who the artist is? And is it in complete art jargon or is it understandable? Or are there typos everywhere and it's just useless to you? Is the show something that changes and rotates or is it kind of just more like an art shop, consignment shop type of thing? Um when you ask someone that works there, what is this artwork? Do they have an answer? Are they willing to explain it to you? Do they have an answer? Can they tell you anything about the artist that's interesting? Or do they list the price for you and that's all they know? So once you start comparing one gallery to the next, you start being able to discern which ones actually Um, know about their artists, care about presentation, understand what makes each artist tick and why their art practice is important. And from there, that helps you understand quality. Another good question to ask them is, do you, where do you show these artists? Do you represent them exclusively or are you just kind of showing any art that comes in your door? And if you're representing your artists, are you taking them to art fairs? Are you showing them at Art Basel? Are you going to New York in the spring when art fairs in person were a thing? Like, what are you doing to leverage this artist's career? And in general, another driver of value that I should have mentioned before is artists who are getting exposure in the right markets, like being seen at Art Basel or being seen at the New York shows or getting a solo show at their gallery or they're getting into museum collections and shows, those that all drives value, that all drives up the price, and that relates to quality. So I was going to say, it doesn't always relate to quality. It's like some bad food always makes it through the like gauntlet. But in general, right. there's a strong correlation. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Catherine, it sounds like you're mostly dealing with living artists. Yes. Uh, let me think about that. Yes and I would say primarily living, but some who are deceased. We focus on contemporary art, generally post-war through present day. So those that have passed away have passed away relatively recently. 
Catherine, the one thing that, well, I, first of all, I love your website. Thank you. Uh, it's masonlaneart.com for any of you who are wondering, and then there's a great blog. But what I thought was so, what's the word that's the opposite of intimidating? It really made me feel approachable. Uh, you have a whole section on there that's a before and after, which I've never seen um, on any kind of art dealer's website or uh, anything like that. And it really truly was amazing how you place a piece in the room and it brings the whole space to life. And I think that people don't regard art that way. They think of it as an add on later when really it can be, it is this focal point. And I love the way that you brought that to life on your site. It was really smart. Thank you. And the other thing I love about your site, you have amazing articles that are so practical. Uh, you do a lot of highlighting uh, creatives in the world, but you also, you know, you break down things like the gallery wall and weird spots in your house and what to do with those weirdo walls. And <laughs> Top three most awkward rooms. Yeah. Right. And like how to make the art you already have be even more fabulous. You know, what do you do with what you have? And I just thought that the whole kind of tone of that made me feel like this is an organization and a person who is not going to intimidate me and is going to help me help me understand what I need to know about art and break down those barriers for me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I take a lot of pride in having a completely approachable and transparent company. The art market is so opaque and art jargon I can read it. I've got a few degrees in art history, but I think that's where the economics comes into play. I'm really practical and it needs to make sense. And I translate that stuff every single day into layman's terms so that people can understand it. There's no need for people in the art world to be pretentious and uh, inaccessible. That's not the point. You know, the mission of our company is to get people to appreciate art in whatever way they can, because if we've learned anything in the past year, it's that it's important to have moments of joy and enjoy the space that you're in because it just drives, just makes you a happier person. Why do you think it's intimidating? Ooh, that's a good question. I, hmm, why do I think it's intimidating? I don't think I can immediately answer the reason why, but I can certainly answer or suggest some ways that it, is unnecessarily intimidating. And one is just the gallery model. Like art is just displayed in this big white box of a gallery most of the time. And there's the walls echo. It's inherently a type of business that doesn't attract a ton of foot traffic. So at least in New York, when you go into a gallery, you're the only one there minus a receptionist. And you're looking at art. There are no couches. There are no chairs. The price list isn't there. It's just awkward. Um, I have a friend who used to be an art dealer and said she wanted to write an, a book called 10 Reasons Why the Art, Why an Art Gallery is the Worst Business You Can Ever Enter Into. And it's not like she <laughs> loves art. She's a private dealer now and operates out of her, out of her, um, her home. But it's just a very standoffish world. And when I that like I said, it doesn't attract foot traffic. Foot tra traffic would come into her gallery. People would take pictures and then leave and go buy something comparable that they could find on the internet or email her. Like no one has that. Very few people are having that face-to-face -face interaction in a gallery um, to sustain such high fixed costs of rent and art storage and paying the artists. <laughs> I mean, there are tremendous fixed costs in that business, but. One thing I noticed when I started the business was that there was this big divide between the art and design world. Art, I think a lot of art galleries or artists don't think, they think that design is below them in some way. Like, did I don't, and I can't cite anything to really back up that thought right now. I would have to think about it more. But I think in general, there's a feeling that design is lower and art is like more elevated and higher. And I didn't think that. And I looked at all these other art advisor websites to do some kind of comparative or competitive study before I launched this business. And none of them had pictures on their website of art in context with design. Some of them had no pictures. <laughs> Which is crazy <laughs> to me. Um, some, a lot of pictures were iPhone pictures. And it was really important to me to show how art and design can be inextricably linked. And all you see, all my pictures are art in context of a room because that's what 
I think that the environment and the impact that it has is so telling for what kind of emotion you like gets evoked by a certain piece. Yeah. Uh, can we talk a little bit about hanging art? Because like Karen said, you, I love, um, the practical tips you have on your blog. And I also just g going through your portfolio and some of your projects, there were lots of, you know, not unexpected, not necessarily unexpected ways you hang hung art, but when you're sort of focusing in on the art and the projects, um, I had a lot of questions. Like, for example, you know, I think a lot of people have, and this is just friends of mine have, I love great big art pieces, but a lot of my friends have small ones. And what do you do with those small pieces? Do you hang it on one tiny sliver of wall? Do you group them together? Like where, you know, because I feel like I, you, if you go and <laughs> a lot of it, like a, an oops design moment is you've get, got like, say a 24 inch by 24 inch piece of art over your sofa. Yeah. Like, and it's hung too high. Let's, I mean, and right? it's hung too high, and, uh, you know, or what? And so I guess, and I, and I loved going through your portfolio to see some small pieces and how to hang them properly in a way that's yes, properly. So kind of give us a, a lesson in what to do with maybe your smaller pieces, because I feel like the large pieces it's a no -brainer. are much easier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. I have so many opinions on how art should be shown um, and a lot of pet peeves. Like it's the cynical, I don't know if it's the cynical side of me or what, but there's so no, many ways honest. to do it's it It's the wrong. educated side. Yeah, we'll right. <laughs> yeah. And it's to hang, I would say step one is to look at the frame and that's for big and small pieces, but the fr framing matters so much. And if you're going to get a small piece, let's say, let's talk about the powder room. You're not going to spend a ton of money and it might just be a lower, relatively lower cost print. Some people have this hang up with paying more for the frame than the artwork. If you bought a $50 print, go ahead and splurge on the frame if you can afford it. Because if you don't, you're going to buy a lower cost print and a lower cost frame, and it's going to look lower cost. But if you buy a lower cost print and then you actually get like a really nice custom frame, it makes a difference and it makes it look much more expensive and much more polished in a space. And then that vignette or powder room scene or whatever you have becomes special. So Framing is important. Frames definitely go in and out of style. It's really um, the beveled frame is in general not in style now. You know, it's nicer to have, it's more contemporary to have a cleaner profile of a frame. So museum glass, if you can splurge, is great because it minimizes any type of reflection such that when you actually look at the artwork, you can see the artwork versus just a reflection of yourself. Uh, I'm a big fan of eight ply mats this is so minor but the mat like if you're getting a work on paper a photograph or something and you choose to frame it with a mat an eight ply is thicker and it just looks more important and it's a really cost effective way to just make your print whatever the cost is look nicer um so those are some framing basics in terms of deciding where to place it and how to place it I like to look at the shape of a wall and assess whether that shape is relatively vertical or relatively horizontal. So this is a podcast, so I won't go into like visuals in my daughter's room behind me. But in general, if you have a more vertical wall, a, hor a vertical piece of art just looks more natural there. Or square, square is pretty versatile. Um, same with horizontal. So that kind of helps you assess what orientation of art to fit in different places. And just really simple rules about hanging. I like to hang things on two nails or two D-rings, not one nail and a wire. It's the earth moves. It's always going to move if it's on one wire um, or one nail and one wire. So Two points is always better than one. There are these 10 cent things called picture bumpers. You can put those behind your artwork oh, so yes. that it doesn't move. The little um, gel knobs. Like a little, little gel things, gel. exactly. Um, and art looks most appropriate when it's hung about 57 to 60 inches, when the center is 57 to 60 inches above the floor. And when you've got a lot of art in one room or more than even, even more than one piece, um, align those centers. So if one piece is hung at, 
60, then hang the others at 60, and it will all look more cohesive. And I will say to our listeners, a lot of this is covered in Catherine's blog. If you dig into her articles, oh, you, because I read them, they were good. I appreciate okay. that. I really uh, spend a lot of it's, time. No, it's very helpful. Honestly, <laughs> I thought it was great. All right, I have yeah. a personal question. Of course. Um, yes. I am shopping for a piece of art for about my fireplace, and um, I hate what's there. Um, but as I was thinking, as I was looking around at what I, I was, am interested in getting, I, I, I sort of got afraid that if I'm purchasing this very specific sort of, uh, proportion, then it won't fit anywhere else in my house. If I change my mind later, like I literally went around my house and measured and I'm like, well, is this stupid? Is this really silly? Am I being short-sighted in doing that? And then having something that really only fits on one wall. Okay. I hear that a lot, um, that people were scared to pull the trigger because what if they stop liking it and you get sick of it? This definitely goes back to what we were talking about earlier about understanding the story behind it. So when you buy art just on aesthetics, the love-hate thing, you're probably going to get sick of it. At some point, you're going to not be in love with it anymore. If you buy art based on the question, is this interesting to me? You start to have a different relationship with the artwork and you can evaluate it three ways. Is it interesting to me? One, aesthetically. Well, why is it interesting? Are those colors soothing? Are they uncomfortable? Are they weird together? Does it remind me of something that I know? Is it, I, do I not understand what that weird shape in the middle is? So you start going through that exercise. And then is it interesting to me material-wise? What is it? Is it oil on canvas? Is it a photogram that's made with light-sensitive paper when you expose light to it in different ways? Is it watercolor that's been put on linen with a broom? You know, that all people create art in many different ways. Sounds like a good um, weekend project. And then third so. is, yeah, right. <laughs> I know. And then third is, is the piece, what is the process that the artist used to create this piece? So when you go through, when you ask yourself, is this interesting to me on those three levels, aesthetics, materials, and process, then you start to develop this longer term connection with it. And that's what drives long-term enjoyment. So you're much more likely to not get sick of a piece if you go through that process. You're also much less likely to get, or much yeah, much less likely to get sick of a piece if you create diversity within your home. So one, one of our corporate clients had this art collection that was literally all two artists and just prints by those two artists. And before we got started with them, we had to ask a group of people, what do you think about the current corporate collection? And literally every single person said, what corporate collection? They didn't even see it anymore because it was all the same <laughs> and their eyes just glazed over it. So Stepping out of your comfort zone a little bit or just knowingly creating different types of moods in your house or energies throughout your house is another great way to not get sick of something. Go crazy. Paint a room all navy blue walls or paint the ceiling or get a painting in one space and then um, focus on photographs or break up a lot of little pieces in another. It's all about diversity, what I call cohesive diversity. And so if you kind of follow those basic rules, it's you're much less likely to get sick of something. And the third is that it's just art. Like I know it's a big line item sometimes, but it's art. And if it's interesting to you at one point, it's probably not going to be not interesting to you at another. You can always try and sell it or reframe or um, switch things out in the future, but it's not like a, it's, right. it's just art. It's, it's supposed to be fun. Right. It's supposed to be fun. Yeah. One of the things that I loved about moving recently, well, two years ago, <laughs> was getting to totally reimagine pieces that I already had and just the wall color or the thing you're hanging it above or the lamp you place next to it can completely change the, even an art piece that has like super bold colors. You're like, okay, how different can that really look? You know, but it can, it can look so different. So um, I love what you're saying, Catherine, about, you know, like not feeling so super serious about it and like letting it be fun. Yeah. And you hit it like dark walls and even wallpaper 
and switching things around the way they're paired, the way they're framed changes the space tremendously. I just did this whole thing on Instagram this morning about showcasing how good art, how what art looks great on dark walls. And people are so scared when if they paint a room dark that it's going to make the room dark. And I think it's the opposite. Like I actually, I believe wholeheartedly in contrast. And when we're advising, we advise on clients more than just art. We do, as you said, um, Karen, I think at the beginning or I think you mentioned this, that we do all kinds of wall styling. So I love having a room that's all dark. It creates contrast and makes the natural light that comes in look even more stunning. Or if if there's a room with no natural light, it sort of embraces the coziness. Like painting that type of room white just makes it look dirty in my mind. I have this thing against dirty white walls. And I think you should embrace the cozy or embrace the mood. And putting art against that kind of dark wall is a great way to just make it pop. Yeah. There were a few um, times in your portfolio, there's one specifically, um, there was this great green painting, very, 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 very large, hung over a navy blue couch. And the back of the painting, just ever so slightly, like sort of came down behind the couch. Oh, so, yes. I, I mean, maybe like three, four inches or something it looked like. Yeah. So when is that okay? Very rarely. Um, That was, I love that project. And that kind of chartreuse color is the client's favorite color. And what you probably can't see from the portfolio pictures, but it's a painting by uh, Darby Bonner, who was one of these color field painters of the 20th century. He's since passed away, but he was one of the greatest color field painters. And underneath that chartreuse color is this navy blue. And when you get close, you can see that underlayer, and it's a similar blue to the couch. So they do play nicely with each other. But the couch is curved, and so they loved, the clients loved this work of art, but it would have looked absolutely wrong if we pushed that couch right against the wall. So when we pulled it out a little bit and kind of embraced the airiness of the curve, it worked. And there was another, I think when you can pull, so to answer your question, when to, when you can pull your couch out a few inches from the wall and it looks right and it doesn't look like you forgot to push it back after vacuuming, then I'd say it's okay. But the curve of the couch really helped that situation. And also that is a huge room. I wouldn't recommend, we we had another situation where the client really wanted it to work and we pulled the couch out and it was a really small space and it looked like we forgot to put the couch back after vacuuming. So it needs to be a big space. Curved couch helps and just a gut check with making it look um, like it's intentional. Well, because I was also thinking about, you know, maybe if you have like a console and the shade um, of your lamp slightly overlaps your painting or something in that instance where it's sort of layering in front, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Layering is really important in art. That's, I always put art on wallpaper, too. People never want to put holes in their wallpaper. Um, but it's a great way to make the wallpaper look even better. And it makes the art look even better. So why not? What about, we talked about affordable art and, you know, um, splurging and saving. What are some great places to find affordable art? Should you look for vintage? Should you look for, like, prints versus originals? What are, what are sort of your sources for that? I was speaking with someone earlier today about that exact question. And I think when we start working with clients, sometimes they get excited that they can afford a big name, a print by a big name artist. They go onto Artnet or somewhere like that. And with their, I'm going to make this up, but $3,000, they can buy a print that that is an edition of 500 by a big name artist who's collected in MoMA. They say, should we get this? And I said, it's really not ideal. You're basically buying a poster by an artist. You're buying a terrible example of a good artist's work. And I would much rather, or I, I look, my job is to just tell people what they're, make sure they know what they're buying, right? I'm not forcing anyone to buy anything. I'm just educating them, giving my recommendations. And then at the end of the day, I want them to feel good about what they're buying and know what they're buying. But 
I'll say, why don't we see what else we can get for this $4,000? I think that's what I said, or $3,000. Usually you can get a great example of an artist's work that's really unique and different rather than a terrible example of a big name artist's work. So that's, I would, I recommend that. And I think that, um, to your point earlier, Caroline, it doesn't matter if it's a good artist, if you're not connecting with the piece and if it's not special to you. So places where to get affordable art from, there are a number of galleries uh, in New York City now that are operating there's a new kind of gallery district on in Tribeca. And I love the Denny Dimon Gallery. I love Markle Fine Arts. Markle Fine Arts is great because they publish their pricing, which is just so refreshing in the art world. Um, we have an office in Toronto and are learning so much about emerging artists coming out of Canada that are collectible, amazing pricing prices. Um, one of the galleries I love there is Division Gallery. There's Christie Contemporary. And then there are a ton of art fairs where there are a collection of these galleries. We take, um, we started in 2019 taking a group of people down to Art Basel, Miami Beach. It was open to anyone. We got overbooked immediately for this three-day tour of the shows. There are about 20 art fairs down there. And there are some fantastic emerging art fairs there, like Volta and Pulse and Art my, what's it called now? Art Miami is a great one. So if you go to those, you're bound to find more affordable emerging art versus going to kind of the blue chip galleries in New York's Chelsea or the actual Art Basel Fair. Yeah. Um, what about commissions? Is that something that a novice art collector should look into? I... I, I do commissions very rarely with clients, honestly. I think that when a client, when we present a work to a client and it's not quite right for whatever reason, it doesn't fit or uh, they need it to be in some slightly different color. And I feel the artist's work is pretty reliable aesthetically, like you know what you're going to get for some very gestural abstract then I'll do, I'll advise my clients to do a commission. Um, but I also think that it's really nice to connect with a work that an artist created out of their heart and out of their emotions. And when you're dictating that process, it diminishes that part of it for me. And Art is, this is getting a little theoretical, but I think art is a great way for people to connect. You're like, artists create work because they feel so compelled to put something down on canvas and that's the best way that they can express themselves. It's just like a singer or an athlete, like they have to get that energy out. That is how they feel whole in the world. And someone else comes along one day and connects with that very personal self-expression it's an amazing connection. Like those are two paths that would never otherwise cross. And it's kind of, it's this crazy intimate, but anonymous connection that exists in the art world. And when you're going back to that artist and saying, gosh, that was so great, but I don't like orange. Like it just <laughs> kind of changes that a little bit. And it's fine. Like I said, I'll do it on rare occasion. I honestly don't love it because I, I don't, I want art, I want my clients to know exactly what they're going to get and I don't want to dictate it for the artist. So I think it's a much more meaningful thing when you actually, the stars align and you find that piece. Um, and that's, I mean, the stars align a lot in our business. Like we're always, we're selling works literally every day that clients are thrilled with and that they feel that sort of matchmaking high off of. And yeah, so I think I think that's a more fulfilling sensation than the commission. I think that might be why it's intimidating. Because people are afraid of their feelings. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's it, it's pretty bold to say I feel this, I connect with this and therefore I want to own it. Because you're just you, you're validating all of your own feelings as well as validating that art and that artist. And if if people aren't secure in that 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 might be really hard for them to do it's a good point a lot of clients say i don't know what my taste is mm -hmm. but i know i know like i can pick up on it and i can <laughs> get them pieces that they 
didn't know that they would love. You know, they say they want one thing and sometimes we're like, yeah, I feel like that's not going to be hit the nail on the head. And then we show them what they want to see and we show them unexpected pieces and they inevitably like being pulled out of the box and or what they thought their comfort zone was. You're you're sort of an art shaman. Do you think? Ooh. I wow, <laughs> that's a big title. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe I should take that on. I like that. Well, it just seems like you, you know, like you said, you can help people understand what they like and 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 I think interior designers do the same thing. A lot of the times when we're talking to them, you know, they talk to people, they don't know what they like, they don't know what they want. And the, it's the designer's job to help them figure that out and to, you know, really understand that client and for the client to trust the designer. And you're doing the exact same thing, but with art, I just think it's great. Yeah. And it's funny. So many, we work with a ton of designers and so many times they say, how do you, like, art is so personal. I'm not good at selling art. How do you do it? But to me, making a house, building a house is personal too. It's a different, it's a different game though. And that's why a ton of designers bring us in. Well, I feel like we should do our decorating dilemma. So yes. I will read it and okay, kind of briefly describe the space we're talking about, and then we will chat about it. Okay, that's Hi, great. this is from Pete. He says, hi, I'm new to your podcast and have really enjoyed it. I especially love the problem-solving conversations and the dilemmas you cover. As an apparel designer, I like to take on creative projects myself, but it is so helpful to have a sounding board, and I would love some insight, if possible, on an area of our home that I'm struggling with. My wife and I bought a mid-19th century Greek Revival farmhouse and horse property that we will be restoring for the next few years, or for the rest of our lives, The home has a lot of original character that remains, thankfully, including some unpainted heart of pine wood paneling. We want to learn, lean into the character and history of the home. It has not been updated in about 60 years, so we are working with a blank slate. My wife's family lives in the UK in a 13th century hall house that was converted to a Tudor in the 1600s, and her aunt and uncle have a gorgeous 17th century farmhouse in the countryside outside of London. Both are constantly a source of inspiration. We like traditional design and historical character while adding in contemporary splashes and pops of color. I attach the color plan we put together for the house if that helps. The front hall and stairwell in this house are especially challenging for us given how much wood there is. There are original posts and beams visible as well as some heart of pine paneling on the walls and there is a wide beadboard paneling going up the stairs. Plus the floors are oak. Our thought was to replace the wood floor in the front hall with a black and white 12 inch diagonal checkerboard and marble tiles, keep the wood paneled walls as is, and then paint the beadboard, banister, spindles, and stair risers up the stairway black to break up the wood. Whew, sorry, I'm out of breath. This is a long one. Um, <laughs> the runner will be replaced and the steps are being refinished along with the rest of the hardwoods in the house with a natural finish and will be lighter than they currently appear. The area above the beadboard, we would strip the wallpaper and paint it to a creamy white and hang artwork since the ceilings are tall up the stairs. I attached a few photos and a video showing the area for reference. How would you tackle it? Do you think we are approaching it incorrectly? Thank you, Pete. Okay, so like you said, there is a lot of wood. Um, and it looks like there are a couple different finishes. Um, it's hard to tell because maybe the floors are just a little bit more worn. Um, than the walls, but it seems like the walls with the paneling and the staircase sort of beat, it's not really a beadboard. It's really more of like a wide wood plank. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I think of beadboard, I think of sort of that one inch. Yep. Um, I agree. I kind of love it. As I mean, I feel like the wood is kind of great. Um, it, I mean, it is a lot of wood, though, obviously. Um, what do you think, Catherine? What's your first sort of instinct? Super charming and definitely agree with the need to break up the wood. So I love the idea of doing the black and white tile in the front. I actually did something similar in my house, and it was a game changer for the entryway. I'm always a huge fan of uh sort of designating certain or distinguishing certain spaces from others so having that tile floor will certainly set to distinguish the 
entry from other areas of the house. And then breaking up the wood, yes, through different colors, but also through the furnishings and the art. So wood is, it's a hard material. I mean, it's not as hard I would consider as metal, but when you're thinking about furnishings, I would definitely get something upholstered and utilize different linens and leathers to kind of soften that wood effect and then integrate some metals as well. Like avoid wooden furniture with all the wood in the house. Yeah, absolutely. And then with art, consider work that's more textural as well. Paintings or even textural pieces made with fabric. I like the idea of the black and white checkerboard. I also think that to your point about um, soft goods, I mean, I you have some great walls and it's a big entryway. So I do think you, he could fit a lot of furniture in here, you know, maybe like a great um, Louis bench, maybe a skirted console table. And to your point, I feel like those upholstered pieces will really help break it up. You know, when you're sitting looking at it and it's just empty with the wood floors and the wood walls and the banister and all that, it does feel like a lot. Um, I feel like if, you know, depending on his budget, I also feel like you could get away depending on the way you're furnishing and sort of accessorizing with a great rug to yeah. kind of break it up. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, if his heart is really set on the black and white, I feel like that'll look great. I, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so yeah, I mean, and I feel like once he sort of takes that wallpaper down off the top portion That'll help a lot because I I do think that that wallpaper just sort of dates it. Yeah, the wallpaper should go. I agree. And I'm not sure if he should paint it or do another wallpaper, but whatever he does, I would make it very light in color. Yeah. So here's a question for you. So he's got got a staircase. And for the bottom section of the staircase, like it's broken halfway and turns. For the bottom section, the entire portion is wood paneling and then probably at about what maybe shoulder height it turns into wall should he hang any art on that portion of the wall that is above eye level i don't think so i would hang art on that next level of the stairs because an entry is inherently an area where there's a lot of activity it just collects clutter it never looks like it does on instagram with the like cute mud boots, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so I think visually for the walls, you need to keep them very streamlined to balance that out. And having art on the left side of the stairs and then also the right will create more clutter than necessary. So I would create 10 towards one focal point. And then what about the banisters? I, I, I feel like there's sort of two schools of thought. Like are these banisters original to the house? It doesn't, depending on how you furnish and accessorize it, it doesn't bother me that there would, especially if you have, like, maybe if you did, like, a great patterned runner, you know, like a stripe or something with a little bit more personality instead of just sort of a um, solid, it might sort of, um, you wouldn't necessarily be as obvious that they're mismatched. So I, I feel like you could go either way with the banisters, personally. Yeah, I agree. Painting them wouldn't, would look great, but... Leaving them, I think, would be fine, too. Yeah, and I think a fresh finish, like if you're not going to paint them, a fresh stain, I should say, mm-hmm. would look really nice. Because it does, it, you, you're right that there are a lot of different finishes going on. So I yeah. would kind of choose one and go with that rather than mm-hmm. making it feel more choppy with all these different ones. Yeah. It's so it's it's so hard to really say because I do feel like this house clearly has so much character. And so I do kind of like the idea of it being a little mismatched because it does like kind of feel but but we don't know what the rest of the house looks like. You're you know? right. I do like that kind of leaning into the storied eclectic nature of it. But if this is the only room that's like that. And everything else is like a lot more uniform than it, it would feel out of place. Yeah, I agree. But he keeps he ref, he's referencing all these, um, you know, old homes in the UK, and I feel like this kind of it kind of looks like that. Yeah, it's charming. It's yeah, certainly it's on brand charming. for what he's describing. Yeah, 
But I like his ideas. I feel Me like too. you're in, you're in, you're, you're taking it in. You, you asked, are we approaching it incorrectly? And no, yeah. I think you're approaching it correctly. I agree. Good job. So good luck, Pete. And I like his color palette that he, um, me too. Really so dynamic. Head down here. Yeah. Okay. Well, Catherine, tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, see your work, all that good stuff. You can find me at MasonLean underscore art on Instagram or MasonLeanArt.com. And feel free to shoot me an email with any questions. KE at MasonLeanArt.com. And absolutely, everyone has to check out your website. As Karen said, the blog, the before, before and after sort of section. It's just so inspiring and so many great ideas and, and very you. approachable. Thank you so much. Thanks for it was coming. A pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Jeff. Absolutely. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcastballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy, happy decorating. decorating.